This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Good afternoon. How are you today? A little later this hour, after the news headlines at half past 12, I'm going to give Stuart McAlpine a call. Now, he is a WA farmer in the Wheatbelt. But we're not going to the farm today. We are going overseas. He's in Dubai this week as part of the big climate summit COP28. He's been on some panels and been taking a look around. So we'll get him to, you know, pull out some of the highlights, but also respond to the news that the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organisation says cutting back on red meat production will go a long way to reducing the world's climate emissions. Now, that was a, a food map, a sustainable food road map that was released earlier this week at COP28. So we'll get Stuart's thoughts on that and some of the climate work he's been doing on his own farm and the implications for production. That's after half past 12 today. Shortly too, picking up on the news you would have heard through the day that China has lifted suspensions on three Australian meat processing companies that were delisted due to COVID trade sanctions. We'll get to that shortly. Six past 12 here on the Country Hour. And a former chair of the Environmental Protection Agency says he needs more detail before deciding if changes made to the environmental approval system are a good idea. Earlier today, at a business breakfast in Perth, the Premier announced a significant overhaul of the state's environmental approval system after a review found the current process is complex and time-consuming. The proposed legislation will allow the Environment Minister to fast-track approvals for projects of state significance. Dr Tom Hatton is a former chair of the Environmental Protection Agency and a very keen defender of the agency's independence. He says at first blush, some of the changes seem very sensible. The facilities to, to speed things up by parallel processing, etc. So there's a lot of sense that seems to come through some of the, uh, the recommendations uh, the government has accepted from the uh, Vogel report. Others, there's kind of a question mark in my mind as to how they would be implemented and how they would be resourced, whether they would be legally robust and how they would stand against the federal environmental approvals process. So the expectations that are implicit in this, that things will speed up, that's understandable. That's a, an, a, an understandable objective. But if they don't provide the, enti- the environmental protections that the federal government will expect for these same projects, then it might be a, a little bit of a false expectation. But we'll see. We'll see when we see the details for the new legislation uh, and we better understand the expectations that the government's putting on the EPA. It'd be a little easier to answer that question. So you mentioned a a question mark in your mind over some of these changes. Which um, specific ones have sort of got a question mark hovering over them from your point of view? Yeah, the the, uh, proposal for us, the EPA to require the minister to provide a statement of intent, I think that might have been the word you might have been turned around there somehow. But for a statement of intent from the minister, 
to the EPA on priorities or, or whatever that would entail and contain, it does raise the question of, well, is there an element of compulsion in that? Is there an element of the implications for the department that supports the EPA in terms of the resourcing and the priorities they set? Because uh, they control the budget, they control the resources. So there's a kind of a question mark over that statement of intent. Now, having said that, it's always been useful to know the minister's mind, if you're you know, the chairman of the EPA, to know the government's priorities and to have those articulated. That's not new, that's useful, but it isn't clear what this change would be on top of that. Because mm, I, I wonder what the intention is in sort of having the EPA recognise the government's priorities and policies I would have thought, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, that when you're going through the process of assessing an application, your sole focus should be on environmental protection, which is the the name of the agency, not having to take into account other things like the government's priorities and policies. Yeah, that, that's that's right, and and I don't. I would be surprised if they wanted to diminish that, if that was their intent. But the thing that's at, at the discretion of the department that supports the authority and the authority itself to some degree is what where they put their limited resources moment to moment on which proposals. So if what they're looking for here is a degree of comfort that if the government says these three proposals, for example, or proposals in this particular area uh, have the government's highest priority that could influence, well, we'll put two more people on that one. We'll move that one ahead of the queue. Now, that that might be all they're really uh, in practice looking for. I don't know. If the intent is take it easy on this one and lower your expectations for protecting the environment, that would absolutely cut across the objective of the Act, which is very simply stated in the Act, the EPA shall use its best endeavors to protect the environment and minimize harmful pollution. That's but the act compels the members of the board to do. So it'll be interesting to see how that actually is, is, is articulated when they, they progress the legislation. It really doesn't matter whether I'm comfortable with that, but the proponents whose proposals are moved back in the queue might not be comfortable with that. So uh, for instance, back when the Metronet proposals were first being brought forward to the EPA for their consideration, a lot of work, a number of proposals, the government asked us uh, to give them priority. And my response at the time was, we will absolutely do the same for you as we do with any proponent of all the government proposals that are in front of us right now. Metronet goes to the top of the list. But what we couldn't do and what we didn't do is to say, and it goes ahead of all the BHP proposals and it goes ahead of all the Rio Tinto proposals. We didn't do that because that wouldn't be fair to the other proponents. So it will be interesting. There will be winners and losers in that process. Yeah, and I suppose it also opens the door for the minister to, to be lobbied, I suppose, to, uh, to declare something a project of state significance so that it does uh, get that fast track. I mean, I don't know whether the EPA normally is subjected to that sort of lobbying itself or whether this might sort of open the door for, um, yeah, the minister to come under pressure to um, allocate something as a project of state significance. Well, I'm not sure I would call it lobbying from the government in the past. But all from companies, yeah. All from companies, absolutely. They're advocating for their projects to move through the system as fast as reasonably possible, and that's understandable. That's to be expected. 
But one thing not to lose sight of in all these recommendations or these anticipated changes in legislation, they all move forward faster or they move forward at all if they have the required resourcing. So you could argue that much of the backlog now that's in the system, which is a fact, and I'm sympathetic to that, is because there have not been adequate resources put against those proposals, their assessment within government. Now, again, reading the announcement, there's going to be more resources available. I don't know where they're going to be going, but if you don't have the people and the technical skill uh, to advance uh, an analysis, an environmental assessment, it's going to go slowly. Now, I do see a reference to using external consultants and uh, technical expertise. We've always done that. I think this is saying there's, yeah, it says there's (laughs) going to be more money for it. So $18 million, which will include more money. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's what you have to do. You have to put more resources into the system. So it's not a new idea to use external consultants to to help things and and third party peer review and technical experts, but you have to have the money to pay them. Dr. Tom Hatton is a former chair of the Environmental Protection Agency, speaking to Damien Smith, and he was responding to the Premier's announcement earlier today of an overhaul of the state's environmental approvals system after a review found the current process is complex and time-consuming. I wonder if you've had any experience with this. Have you had a big project, a small project? Um, it's been a lot of work, very time-consuming, very complex to get it through the environmental approval system. Let me know. Um, obviously, the large-scale ones like mining resources projects, I can imagine there's a lot of green tape there, but maybe you've had the experience too. Let me know. 0448 922 604, that's the text. 0448 The review was led by another former chair of the Environmental Protection Authority, and it made 39 recommendations, including expanding the APA's board to include more skills-based members. Quarter past 12 here on the Country Hour. Well, firefighters have spent a second night monitoring a bushfire at Howarthara, just north of Geraldton. It started over the weekend, but is now contained and under control. But livestock have been lost, and one person suffered minor burns as the flames came dangerously close to homes and sheds. The overnight fire control officer for DFES was Kieran Musson. The fire has been uh, contained and controlled from yesterday afternoon. Uh, It's sort of burnt through nearly 1,100 hectares. Uh, Overnight, the crews have been mopping up uh, hot spots within our containment lines um, we've had some pretty favourable weather conditions, uh, some light easterly winds overnight and some uh, sort of high relative humidity, uh, which is a lot of moisture in the air. So in the sort of moderate overnight temperatures as well, all that combined has, has really worked in our favours to uh, pretty much uh, get on top of this fire. I was thinking this morning it was a, a good thing there was no wind. I imagine that was a, a pretty different scenario the night before last. Absolutely. Uh, you know, when it kicked off uh, on uh, Sunday afternoon uh, and uh, well, late late morning actually on Sunday and uh, uh, pushed through right and tested uh, all our resources, we've had uh, a really great combined effort up here from 
the you know Chapman Valley uh, crews up here from the bushfire brigades and uh, you know outside uh, greater areas from Geraldton and the, the VFRS, the volunteers and the careers and DBCA um, farm units, the farmers up here, they all come out of the woodwork from everywhere and <laughs> all helping each other out and it's great to see up here and. Uh, yeah, we've had uh, support in the air as well. We've had the large air tanker up here doing three drops and uh, the smaller uh, bombers as well, the air attack um, been, uh, on the Sunday as well really uh, help, helped out from the air, uh, the ground crews. Has anyone been hurt when they were um, fighting this fire? So there was one firefighter that received uh, minor burns. Uh, he was treated at Geraldton Regional Hospital and released. Uh, so he's he's doing well. Yeah, that's good. I'm glad to hear they're okay. The other thing that uh, I guess the other concern really here is livestock losses. Do you have any indication of what's been lost there on the ground yet or is it too early? It is too early. Uh, Deep Herd is uh, collating that information and they'll be able to um, uh, disseminate that yeah. to, uh, to all outlets. Uh, but, yeah, there, there, has, there has been some stock losses. Uh, just I can't confirm numbers at the moment, but uh, they're, they're not too high. Uh, the infrastructure as well, there was, there was no... Uh, houses or buildings lost there, there was some minor um equipment that uh was uh lost um some outbuildings as well uh but uh, superficial damage to those with uh on that note as well i'd just like to remind people that uh we uh, have a campaign uh at the moment got 15 minutes to burn uh it's you know related to you know wa's bushfire prone to over 90% of WA and uh, bushfires can start at any time, you know, whether you live in regional areas or suburbs or whatnot. Um, we're just asking that uh, people create a uh, bushfire plan. It can just take uh, 15 minutes and it's just a way to, you know, keep you and your household safe and, you know, it gives you options about, you know, whether you want to stay and defend or whether you're going to leave early. And if you're unsure as well, you know, we can... Uh, also help uh, you know make you decide uh, what what your choices are, and uh, that's that's accessible on our uh, DFES website, which is uh, uh, dfes.wa.gov.au. And alternatively, you can uh, uh, type in mybushfireplan.wa.gov.au. Kieran Musson from DFES, he was the overnight fire control officer. The Chapman Valley Shire is working with agencies to produce an impact assessment that will include details on those livestock losses. 20 past 12. This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. As I mentioned a moment ago, China has lifted suspensions on three Australian meat processing companies that were delisted due to COVID trade sanctions. Two are in Victoria and the other is in South Australia. Meat industry analyst Simon Quilty has been keeping an eye on this story and says overall it's good news for the whole meat industry. These were plants that were, you might say, had COVID-related issues at the time of their delisting, with two of them being delisted as far back as mid-2020. And the more recent one, 
if that's the right expression, was early 2022. In each instance, you know, there was um, either uh, issues of COVID being talked of, or there was COVID present, or they were trying to deal with COVID potentially at the time. But these, in particular, one or two of these forfeited their licenses voluntarily at the time, um, thinking they were doing the right thing. And here we are three and a half years later, now receiving them back. It was very a period of real uncertainty. All product going into China at the time was being tested for COVID on meat products because the Chinese believed um, that meat was a carrier of COVID. It isn't, and it was proven you know, scientifically, but nonetheless, that was their desire at the time. Do you know what the financial ramifications have been to these businesses of China closing its doors? I, I think in many respects, they've been enormous in the sense of just taking away one of the most important markets. But a lot of these operations have adapted, found new markets, but without doubt, this is welcomed um, by everyone. But for what it's worth, China today is the second largest beef market that Australia has. Um, in terms of mutton, it's our number one market taking almost half of our mutton exports. And in terms of lamb, um, it sits at, at number one as well. So, you know, each of these plants, particularly lamb and mutton, um, out of Brooklyn and out of Colac, are critical because those are small stock plants and uh, those two markets are very important. So just because these companies are now allowed to trade with China, you think they'll go back? Without doubt. In the trading world, you are always looking for, obviously, the best bidder on the day. I think also that all those concerns about COVID, about you know the hypersensitive nature in which China was looking at it, when they lifted um, in January this year, the restrictions within China, a lot of those concerns, you might say, have gone. Um, and as a result, you know, we're all looking to China today in a much different light than back then in mid-2020. So yes, I think they will be shipping back there. And yes, it's, it's truly welcomed. Was there market diversification in the meantime, though? We heard other industries that have been banned by China, for example, wine, were sort of saying, we're not going to be so reliant on China anymore. Is that the same with mutton, for example, or any of the meat markets? No, I think it's always challenging. Um, you know, often it's spoken of, you know, diversification, without doubt it occurs. But there are certain items that really end up going to certain markets. And a good example is flat meat in the mutton and, and lamb sector, that China is a critical part of that, breast and flat. So even though in all the best intentions in the world, but the next alternate market is so less in price that it does truly make a difference. The other area is offals, where China is paying a premium above all other markets. So, you know, it, it really is different items for different markets. Some can be diversified, but in many situations, China is absolutely key when it comes to certain meat items. So why did it take China so long to welcome these companies back? Well, that's really a decision made by China, of course. But I think part of it too is let's think about, you know, the political um, relationship with China and Australia, that it had been truly problematic for a good while. 
and just until recent times with you know australia has you know really made a huge effort to try and patch up the differences and i think that so much of this is about the work that our government has done and so full credit to them and the various departments in restoring relations what will this mean for the domestic market well it helps all markets in the sense that once you create that extra competition it tends to one help lift prices and two divert product to where it's most needed and as i said you know mutton for example china is the number one market 46 percent you know keep in mind we've still got seven plants across australia that haven't got access yet that have also been delisted over the last three and a half years. So from a Victorian point of view, and in particular from a mutton and lamb point of view, this is truly good news. Of those other seven plants, it's really Queensland, of which six of those seven reside, and it's beef that dominates it. So the impact, you know, in terms of domestically and um, export-wise, is slightly different. In Victoria, I think the biggest impact will be felt on mutton and lamb. In Queensland, it will be beef. Meat industry analyst Simon Quilty speaking to Jane McNaughton about three Australian meat processing companies that can now start exporting to China again. One of them is the Australian Lamb Company in Western Victoria. One is JBS Brooklyn in Melbourne's west. And the third is Tees in South Australia. Federal Trade Minister Don Farrell says this is a positive step towards the stabilisation of Australia's relationship with China. And the Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt says as our biggest trading partner, the normalisation of trade with China has been a big win for our agricultural sector. 27 past 12, uh, shortly an update from the newsroom for you and then checking the weather around Western Australia. First, though, the state government has decided to delay the release of draft plans for the South Coast Marine Park until February next year. This is the marine park that's going to include waters from Bremer Bay all the way round to the WA South Australia border. State Environment Minister Rhys Whitby says he's listened to calls from communities and the fishing industry to delay the release of the plan. I received uh, a letter uh, from the local Shire Council and also from WAFIC, the uh, WA Fishing Industry Council, recently requesting uh, that we um, delay putting out the proposed uh, uh, maps and boundaries and uh, until the new year after the Christmas uh, period uh, and I've been considering that uh, request and I've decided that it's a reasonable ask of the council and WAFIC uh, that um, people have an opportunity to view that information after the Christmas period. So I understand that people go away on holidays and uh, have other issues on their mind and want to get away and relax a bit. So I think an appropriate time would be in the new year um, after the school holidays when people are back at their office, at their desk and able to contemplate this, this properly. WA's Minister for Environment, Reese Whitby, speaking to Andrew Collins. So the South Coast Marine Park plan won't be released until February next year. One of the big concerns for the commercial fishing industry is the size of the no-take zones within the park. 
Now, industry wants them under 11% of the park area, but it sounds like the government is considering a figure closer to 22%. But at this stage, nothing has been formally announced. Esperance Shire President Ron Chambers says the ongoing delay for the release of the marine park plans is having a significant effect on people. This process has been going on for 18 months and whilst this is sort of hanging over the head, it's very difficult for people, one, to work out, you know, where and how do they grow their business with the uncertainty of, of what areas they're going to or not going to have access to in the future. And it would also impact on their, their capacity to, to borrow money um, and could possibly even impact on, on other financial issues because uh, the banks as well would be trying to work out what we are or aren't going to do, what is or isn't going to happen and what impact that will or won't have on on the professional fishermen down here. Ron Chambers from the Esperance Shire talking to Emily Smith. It is 29 past 12 and Hurling Corps is here with an update from the newsroom. Hello. Hello, Belinda. Thank you. The WA Premier says he did not force Adam Thomason to step down as Director General of the Department of Justice. Dr Thomason announced his resignation yesterday after seven years in the job. During his tenure, he oversaw a particularly tumultuous period in youth justice, including riots, abuse allegations and the state's first recorded death in juvenile detention. WA's Environment Minister says the Environmental Protection Authority will remain independent despite changes that will allow the minister to direct the EPA to prioritise projects. The government has announced an overhaul of environmental approval processes after an independent review found the current system is complex and time-consuming. And authorities in WA are planning to remove the carcass of a whale which became stranded in shallow water at a beach in Perth South. The sperm whale came ashore at Rockingham Naval Memorial Park Beach yesterday and was confirmed dead this morning. All the details at one o'clock coming Thank you very much. Appreciate the update. It is 29 to 1. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Great to have you along. And as Herling was just mentioning, the uh, Premier, Roger Cook, announcing earlier today that there's going to be this major overhaul of the state's environmental approvals system after a review found the current process is just complex and time-consuming. In response to that, Phil says the EPA has long been directed by the government. Take Albany Motorplex, for example, approved on a site over a wetland and a priority water catchment. Long-held policy stated that it was an inappropriate development, but the EPA didn't even make an assessment. The Water Minister Kelly stated at the time that the environment and water would be protected. Thank you for that. Your thoughts on the text, 0448 922604. Shortly heading to Dubai, we're going to catch up with local WA farmer Stuart McAlpine, who is over at the conference this week. He's been part of a panel and other things. And Walk says, don't think for one minute the agendas from COP28 are for the benefit of farmers. They will make you believe cattle and sheep are more harmful to the environment than a factory producing fake meat or bug burgers. Bill Gates is trying to pull another fake agenda to make money and get more control over the population. Thank you, Walks. 0448 922 604. Text through with your thoughts this afternoon. Heading off now to the Bureau of Meteorology and catch up with Luke Huntington. Luke, what's the story around the Southwest Land Division this afternoon? 
Yeah, afternoon, Belinda. So um, generally quite around the southwest land division. We do have a high-pressure system dominating the area and just a trough off the west coast. And it's just beginning to move uh, inland at the moment. So uh, warm temperatures near the west coast um, sort of been around the low to mid-30s, right from the midwest down to the lower west and even down to the southwest corner. We're seeing those low 30-degree temperatures. Um, we did probably see a couple of showers just to the east of Esperance, um, just due to a, a low-pressure system near Eucla. So that's the only sort of weather to speak of today um, in the Southwest Land Division. And then heading into tomorrow, um, the only precipitation would be just in the onshore flow around um, the coast between Windy Harbour and Albany. They may pick up a light afternoon uh, shower around that area, but otherwise it's going to be generally clear uh, through the remainder of the Southwest Land Division. Um, probably see some more extreme fire dangers about the, uh, the Midwest and the Lower West districts. Um, just with the fresh sea breeze moving there through that area uh, and some warm temperatures during tomorrow afternoon. Um, and then heading into Thursday, we see the ridge developing um, to the south once again. So um, just in the onshore flow near the coast between uh, Bremer Bay to Israelite Bay, including Esperance, may see uh, just a light morning shower through that area, but otherwise all clear for the remainder of the Southwest Land Division. Um, Friday, we're not expecting any uh, precipitation through the Southwest Land Division. That ridge is just really going to dominate um, with predominantly uh, east-south-easterly winds throughout the area. Um, but the temperatures will warm up uh, over Friday, particularly through the inland northern part. So the inland uh, central west getting into temperatures near 40 degrees and over parts of the northern wheat belt, um, they could be looking at temperatures in the high 30s or even uh, approaching 40 degrees. Um, the peak of the, the temperatures do occur on Saturday through that area. Um, we are looking at temperatures through the inland uh, central west getting into the low 40s and into the northern uh, central wheat belt as well. Um, and then on the Saturday period, um, we could even see some a return of um, some showers and thunderstorms over the uh, sort of the northern and central parts of the southwest land division. So at this stage, uh, we've got them over the southeast and central west um, into the wheat belt area over the far north Great Southern and maybe just touching the northeastern parts of the lower west district. Um, those thunderstorms, a little bit uncertain how much rainfall they'd produce. Um, some of the models are going for some rainfall in those thunderstorms, while other models are sort of indicating sort of more dry thunderstorms. So that'll probably firm up in the next couple of days um, and the area may be um, a finessed a little bit, but um, there is that potential of of um, that thundery weather on Saturday. And then for northern and eastern parts, Luke? Yep, uh, generally quiet as well. So uh, just apart from some showers uh, over the Eucla area, um, as I said, that's just due to a low-pressure system in the area. Um, and also over the northern Kimberley, we're expecting some showers and thunderstorms um, this afternoon. Um, there are already some uh, forming near Columbaroo at the moment, so that'll continue during the afternoon period. Uh, we're not um, experiencing too much rainfall with those thunderstorms. They're going to be fairly isolated, so maybe 5 to 10 millimetres with those storms. Um, and it's a similar story pretty much all week. Or any, any thunderstorm activity for the north is going to be confined to the northern and eastern parts of the Kimberley. Um, maybe getting into the far northeastern parts of the northeast interior on Saturday. But pretty much, um, yeah, a similar weather pattern throughout the week for the northern half. And the warnings this afternoon? Yeah, we do have an extreme fire danger warning um, for the Midwest and the Swan Inland North and South areas and also the Blackwood Fire Weather District. And we've just got a wind warning for the Euclid Coast for today.
Luke, thank you for going through all of those details. I appreciate it. It is 23 to 1. ABC Radio, fire ban information. Yeah, there's about nine fires burning throughout the state that are currently at an advice level. So due to the risk of fire, some shires have actually imposed a total fire ban for today, and that includes the Midwest. So that's for the shires of Chapman Valley, Greater Geraldton, Northampton and 2J. And also in the southwest regions of Boyup Brook, Bridgetown, Greenbushes, Donnybrook, Bailing Up and Murray. So during a total fire ban, you can't light a fire at all for cooking, camping or anything like that. No hot work such as grinding and welding. No off-road use of four-wheel drives or quad bikes. And if you are looking at doing anything along those lines, it's your responsibility just to check with your shire for any specific restrictions like harvest and vehicle movement bans in place as well. And again, there's more about what you can and can't do during a total fire ban. And there's also a map of the areas on emergency WA. They're the only two uh, words that you need to plug into a search engine. As far as rain goes, Bell, very unusual today. Normally at this time of year, the most rain has been in the Kimberley. But there was nothing there, nothing anywhere in the state except in the Eucla district, which is normally pretty darn dry. Uh, Eucla itself got four mills, Air 11, Forest 3 and Red Rocks Point 11 mills. So this is all in the far southeast corner of the state. And right near the WASA border is Mundrabilla Station and it's owned by Colin and Bree Campbell. Cole, I hear you might have finally got some rain. Uh, we have, yeah. We had 17.2 overnight and probably about five mils since nine o'clock this morning. So it's been a, been a fairly good rain. 22 mils, that would be very welcome because I was chatting to Bree, uh, your, your partner, just a few days ago and she was saying, you've only had about 100 mils for the whole year, haven't you? Yeah, about that. Yeah, it's been been pretty dry. But yeah, it's it's certainly dry to the north of us but and uh, yeah, to the northwest on the, along the trans line. But yeah, we're pretty pretty grateful for what we had. What was it like listening to it fall and and watching it fall? Oh, it was good because most of it fell overnight. So yeah, the bigger part of the rain. But yesterday it was sort of light rain, probably all day. But yeah, it's still fairly patchy sort of rain. Yeah, sort of parts of the station are sort of not registering big falls. But um, yeah, no, that's good. It, it'll get some feed growing, so it'll be be good for the summer. What does 22 mils do? Does it soak straight in or is it puddling up and forming small lakes? Oh, it's starting to pull up a little bit now on the roads and that, but um, we were lucky enough sort of probably a week ago that five mils and then prior to that we sort of um, we had a, a 10 mil. So, yeah, that's it, it sort of the feed was out of the ground, so this will this will be good to, to keep it going. I bet the, uh, the livestock that you've got will be happy. W- what have you currently got there at the moment at Mundrapilla? Uh, we just run cattle, so, yeah, cattle and a lot of feral animals. <laughs> you were saying those stations on the trans line, so that's basically if, as you're going across the Nullarbor, that's following the, the train line all the way along. You were saying some of those stations have been dry not only this year but the last few years as well. Is that right? Yeah, they've had sort of a bit of a long long dry spell, yeah. So um, I'm not too sure whether it's it's got that far or not. It's just sort of circling around off the coast and doing a bit of a bit of a circle around at the moment. So yeah, hopefully they're, they're getting a bit. Parents have uh, got a station to the northwest of us up there and yeah, it has been pretty dry up there. 
um, brothers um, sort of up there running that. So, yeah, I think if they got a bit of rain, they'd be pretty happy too, I reckon. Kaibo Station by any chance? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And I guess the guys to the west of them are probably in the same boat, I'd say. Well, let's hope that rain has uh, headed inland. But that, that's that's a fair way north of you, isn't it? Um, it is, yeah. Yep, sort of probably, yeah, looking probably a couple of hundred k's, yeah. And this system might not have quite made its way that far inland? Probably not, no. Yeah. Are you expecting to get any more out of this system? Um, there's still a lot of cloud around and, yeah, it, it, we might get some more today, but I think after that it's forecast to clear up, so... Um, yeah, uh, but like I say, we're pretty happy with what we got. It's an early Christmas present. Oh, it is. It's probably the best Christmas present. <laughs> <laughs> is it going to change your plans? Oh, I'd just probably make them easier, I reckon. Yeah, less less pumping water and, you know, a bit of food around. So, yeah, the cattle will definitely pick up. All right. Well, hopefully uh, it rains a little bit more for you and hopefully it rains some more for them as well. But uh, great news and enjoy it. <laughs> yeah, we will. Colin Campbell from Mundrabilla Station, which, as I mentioned, it's not too far from the WASA border in the very far southeast of the state. And, Bella, here, Andrew Collins and his regional drive team, massive regional drive team, is on its way to Eucla as we speak. So uh, I think there might be a few smiles on the faces of uh, particularly some of the owners of those stations in that part of the world anyway. Oh, well, they've timed that perfectly then. Thank <laughs> you for that, Richard. 18 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Just before the news at 1, it is off to Michet today. We'll get the results of the sheep market for you. First, though, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organisation says cutting back on red meat production will go a long way to reducing the world's climate emissions. The organisation's Sustainable Food Roadmap was released earlier in the week at the COP28 Climate Summit in Dubai. In fact, it was released on the COP28 President's Day dedicated to food, agriculture and water. Stuart McAlpine, who farms at Buntean, 280 kilometres north of Perth, is actually in Dubai this week. Stuart, is cutting back on red meat production the best roadmap to sorting out the world's climate problems? Well, it's certainly not the best way forward. I mean, it's one of the tools in the toolbox. Um, I think probably it might be more about how we grow our red, red meat and the food production systems we have, uh, and that's a long conversation. But, um, yeah, diversity, I think, is very important um, on farming systems. And there's been, you know, a lot around sort of, you know, ecosystem services that farming can provide. And I think if animals aren't part of um, the diversity on farm, then I think some of that ecosystem service might be a bit hard to achieve. We heard from the National Farmers Federation, the president, David Johinke, is also over in Dubai and he was saying, look, it's great that, you know, producers are there taking a lead on these sort of conversations about climate change. But he was also making the point and wanted to be really clear that he didn't want to see any reduction of production. And what he really wanted to see was, you know, farmers getting on with the business of farming, but doing it with the latest technology and the best research at hand. Is that, are you sort of on the same page with David Johinke? Oh, again, we've got to use all the all the tools that we have in the toolbox and there's some absolutely amazing technology there. I suppose I come from a perspective of sort of working with more natural systems sort of probably over the last sort of 20, 25 years now and seeing what can be achieved from that, you know, without really any um, significant loss, loss in production, but a lot of 
sort of opportunity to repair our soil, sort of bringing soil biology into the picture as well. So we've got to use all the tools that we've got. And yeah, we're not going to throw the baby out with a bath wet up water. We're going to end up with a with a system that, that takes the best of everything to um, to farm. We have to. The, the, the effect of climate on us is going to be um, quite negative at times and we're going to have our, our good seasons as well. But, you know, we have to remain profitable at the end of the day. So I agree with that as a premise. Stuart, what would you say, if you're looking at your farm, because you've done a lot of work in this area, if you could pull out sort of one or two sort of uh, natural changes that you have made at the farm that have really made a difference to your farming operation and that contribution to, you know, for the environment, looking after the environment at the same time, what would you sort of pull out? Well, you know, I think I'd firstly like to say that I've still got a lot to learn and a, and a lot to do and, and I guess like a lot of the work I've been doing has been in isolation and spending my own money on research. But, yeah, like actually if I call myself a farmer now, I'd probably say if I farm the soil biology or, you know, encourage the soil microbiome in my soil, like if I get that going then I create healthy soils, healthy plants, um, you know, healthy cattle, you know, I, I, I run cattle as well uh, and everything starts looking after itself. I know it sounds a bit simplistic, but, you know, like I think we've fluffed around the edges sort of, you know, with the chemical and physical properties of the soil and we've sort of left the soil biology alone because it's, it, yeah, look, I think we've only identified less than 1% of the species on the earth and that's part of the problem, but it's it's that whole microbiome and like, yeah, I've been able to I virtually don't use fungicides or insecticides. I mean, I still use herbicides, obviously, because I'm still in a monoculture. But so, you know, and if I do use them, it's very, very rarely. So, you know, natural systems can provide a lot of resilience in our system. And, and, but it, it, it doesn't happen overnight, but it can happen quite quickly. And what about the climate work that you've done on your farm, what can you share with us about that? What have you noticed in terms of climate changes and the impact that has on your production? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, you know, we've, we've always had huge shifts in, in, in the climate in Australia and I guess globally, but particularly in Australia because we, we tend to operate sort of at the, you know, particularly we're farming on the edge of the desert or in the desert, some might say. Um, so we've always had variation, but so it's 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 been a, a creep, and actually I, I did some um, climate um, data, or Richard Riddle did some climate data for me the other day, of where we are now, sort of compared to sort of you know historically, and um, you know the the rainfall itself is only um, reduced by I think about 13 mils, so a um, hundred average is sort of 333 mils, and it's down to 320, but it's so that's only a four percent drop, but the real problem has been we've seen a reduction in growing season rainfall of 40 millimetres of rain. You know, that's really significant. In fact, you know, using the sort of 12 and a half kilograms, kilograms of wheat per millimetre, that, that's actually a reduction uh, in half a tonne to the hectare. And then it gets a little bit more frightening when you actually look at the, the changes in the maximum and minimum temperatures. So again, we've seen a, an increase of 0.6 over the whole year, but actually in the growing season, We've seen an increase of of 1.1 degree uh, in the max, and in the minimum, um, it's pretty well um, one degree across the whole whole year. So that's an uh, increase in two degrees additional heat every day, um, and the effect of that is an increase of, of evapotranspiration of about 18%, which is actually another 40 millimeters. 
So that's another um, sort of half a tonne reduction in yield. So that's sort of taking down uh, the yield potential based on, on rainfall and evapotranspiration from 3.25 to 2.25. So that's a 31% reduction in yield. So, I mean, they're, you know, I mean, they're, they're numbers. I mean, we, there's other things that contribute to yield, you know, with management and a lot of other factors, but it's, yeah, quite frightening. And, and actually, you know, we've just had 2022 was, was our best year we've ever had. And 2000 and, 23 has been our worst year we've ever had, you know, like significantly bad. I've never had crop sort of not chuck a head up before and we had that this year. So it's, um, yeah, I think we've got to take all this into consideration and, you know, we've got an average, uh, you know, grow, growing age of our average population. You know, there's a lot of great young ones around Dawalni with the Libby group and it's a really vibrant community, which is fantastic. But I think, you know, we need to be mindful that we've got to, support our farmers you know if we want to attract young people back into the industry and you know external weather conditions that are putting you know extreme pressure on our on our farming profitability um you know things like global conflict and financial issues you know i think you know food security is going to become an issue over time with some of these big shifts in in weather and political conflict um, so we need to find ways to support our, our young farmers to, to get into agriculture when, you know, traditionally farmers, you know, take, take the spoils and take, take the wins as well. This is The Country on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. Stuart McAlpine with you this afternoon. He's usually farming in the wheat belt, um, about 280 kilometres north of Perth. But right now he's in Dubai as part of the big climate summit COP28. Um, how did you get a ticket here, Stuart? What are you doing there? Yeah, well, I was fortunate to um, be supported by the Meridian Group and um, the Robinson Foundation specifically. So they um, funded about 40 frontline community leaders from around the global south to participate at COP and sort of be involved in sort of presentations and yeah, but also a way of sort of, you know, seeing what's happening, you know, globally and in other countries um, and sort of taking that information back to, to their communities. And what would you say have been the highlights? I think the highlight has, has been just seeing how much there, you know, is a real um, push into sort of transforming our um, food systems sort of so that they're sort of more oriented around people and nature climate so like sharing that and like a real focus in words if nothing else in making sure that you know um, farmers and and a lot around indigenous um, knowledge from around the world as well like their their voice is heard and a lot of a lot of stuff around all the financial institutions supporting that and a lot of talk around farmers sort of um, stretching their eco-stream eco to sort of um, being paid for ecosystem services and, you know, potentially um, participating in renewable energy um, solutions on farm for, for society as well. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty exciting. And, um, you know, there's, there's just the, the scale of it, just I think some, there's over 100,000 people have come here and there's all these blue zones and green zones. And, and then we're in Dubai, which, like, I've been through Dubai but never been here before, but it, it's, it's got to be seen to be believed. It's so clean and it's just massively huge. And how would you rate the farmer representation at this climate summit? There's a lot of farmers, uh, and in particular there's a lot of representation from, from farmer 
industry groups like and you know the, the umbrella organizations and stuff like that there's a lot of philanthropic not-for-profit um organization that support um you know um foundations and stuff like that to support a lot of um agriculture globally as well and i think one thing i would make a point and i was lucky enough to go to italy earlier on in the year to a think tank on regenerative agriculture with regen 10 and yeah, I, I think we are not um, being representative on the global stage enough from our country and having input into some of the policies that are, are being implicated. And, you know, I think that's 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 not great because, you know, we will, you know, sometimes we can be affected by other countries because we're an exporter of food, really, primarily. Like, it's important that they, they hear about our farming systems and our challenges in Australia. And we... You know, we're very innovative in Australia, so we can provide a lot of innovative ideas that perhaps are transferable to other landscapes And so why, well. why aren't we on that world stage more? Well, you know, I, I'm here as a guest of, of, the, of the Emirates, and that was the only way I could get a ticket. I mean, I, I, I had a speaking spot as part of a panel, which was just the most amazing experience, and I got this opportunity a little bit late, but our ability to to get a um, support from the government through our local passes had, had expired and look, we tried through the state government. I couldn't get any support to get here. And I think, yeah, I think our governments have got to step up and support our industry leaders in getting here and getting out in the global stage as well. And, and they, they get an allocation of tickets and we just couldn't get a response from anyone. And I know it was late and it's all a bit too hard, but hey, can't we just get things done? So what, what are the implications of like the, the farm sector or individual farmers just not being there, part of this discussion? Well, I think we're missing out on a lot of opportunity to participate in the discussions around, you know, what, what is being put into policy, you know, and I think if we just leave it to the government sitting at the table, I think the governments are the only ones that aren't sort of on board on this whole shift. There's a lot of money going into supporting this transformation, like huge amounts of money. And if we're not here, we're not going to get any of that money. So, you know, we might be the best at what we're doing in, in a more of a traditional form of ag. But as as we um, have to transform to not only doing what we do really well now, but also thinking about how we can do it in a way that provides a benefit to the ecosystem and the landscapes that we farm in, you know, knowing that, you know, in the wake of sort of agriculture, particularly in, in Western Australia, there's been huge biodiversity losses and salinity and stuff like that. If we're not part of that, then we're not actually skill, you know, upskilling ourselves to change to the, to the new food systems that are going to be paramount to, to being able to supply into them. Well, I'm really glad you could be part of the discussion here on the Country Hour today, Stuart. Thank you so much for taking this early morning call, your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Belinda. Wheatbelt farmer Stuart McAlpine over in Dubai this week for the COP28 climate talks. It is five to one here on the country. I will get to the markets in just a moment. This on the text from Jack in Ongarup, who says, how much atmospheric CO2 is animal made? Compare that to what industrial production creates. This climate change agenda is more about a transference versus a protection, EU, of wealth. As always, follow the money, says Jack. Thank you for that, Jack. And speaking of rain, we went over to Mundrabilla Station uh, just a few moments ago, caught up with the owners there, Colin and Bree Campbell, talking about some 
rain they received in the last 24 hours and apparently two mills at Maryvale at Esperance. Thank you for letting us know that too. Appreciate it. Three minutes to one. Well, let's head to Mushay now because there was quite a big sheep sale on at the Mushay sale yard this morning. Numbers up about 2,750 on last week and that included just over 5,500 lambs. Terry Birkin's been at the sale all morning. Hello, Terry. Higher numbers continued this week with well over 10,000 head consisting mainly of mutton and store lambs. Approximately 5,500 lambs were penned today, but only around 1,000 of those were 20 kilograms and over. The lamb market held up to recent values considering there is still a large backlog of lambs at processing plants. The mutton market across the board eased into $15 with graziers picking up cheap lines that otherwise were struggling to sell. Store lambs made from $13 to $76, while light lambs were selling from $50 to $94 a head. Trade lambs returned $76 to $130 and heavy lambs sold to a top of $142 a head. Ram lambs realised $94, while young ram hoggets managed to reach $60 and the best of the crossbred hoggets made $51 a head. Quality merino weather hoggets was lacking, making $20 to $40, while merino ewe hoggets returned $15 to $46 a head. Bony ewes eased, making $2 to $15, medium ewes were selling from $10 to $25, and heavy ewes sold to a top of $35, while mature rams were back, mostly selling from $2 to $5, with the very odd pens selling to $41 a head. This is Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Terry, thank you for that. Appreciate it. And some news from the APVMA um, has just been uh, just put out a, a media release about some changes made to regulations around the use of a few chemicals that are used on farm, namely dimethoate and chlorpyrifos. But we couldn't understand what those statements actually meant. Um, it's not the clarity certainly isn't there. So hopefully on tomorrow's show you'll hear someone from the APVMA explaining exactly what is going on because you might remember back in September the chemical regulator imposed a suspension on dimethoate after it received reports of residue levels higher than permitted on avocados ready for sale. So hopefully the calls are in. We'll get some clarity around dimethoate and chlorpyrifos on the country hour tomorrow and pick up on that APVMA media release. Good to talk to you. Time for the news, one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.